Доброго вечора, ми з України. Hello, you are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host and Livin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, featuring interviews with key people on the ground in Ukraine and experts from around the world. I am your host, Anne Levine, from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts, reporting for the Pacifica Radio Network. Our guest is Yulia Mandel, press secretary for the first two years of President Volodymyr Zelensky's administration. Yulia spoke to us as we approached the first anniversary of last year's attack on Ukraine on February 24, 2022. Yulia shared her experiences with President Zelensky and her impressions of Putin. Yulia Mandel became the first Ukrainian journalist to win the World Press Institute program. She worked as a journalist for ICTV, Espresso TV, 112 Ukraine, and Inter TV channels, Politico Europe, The Atlantic, Forbes, and The New York Times. She worked as a communications consultant at the World Bank. She was the producer of the first documentary about post-traumatic stress disorder, Shell-Shocked Ukraine's Trauma. Yulia Mendel is the author of The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky and Ukraine's Battle for Democracy and What It Means for the World. Mendel expresses her hopeful plans for a follow-up book entitled The Victory of Our Lives. Yulia Mendel, welcome to Ukraine 242. Well, hi. Thank you for having me. Your book, The Fight of Our Lives, starts out with a description of what you experienced on February 24th, 2022, when Russia bombed Kyiv. And you said Putin planned to surround Kyiv, murder Zelensky, and install a puppet regime. We are absolutely grateful to everyone who stood with us because when the Western world stood for Ukraine, it meant that we stayed as independent country, we exist on the map, we have our democracy, and we have our choice. A year later, what might Russia be planning for February 24th, 2023? We are expecting another escalation, another offensive from Russia. We got the approval about getting modern tanks. So Russia wants to attack Ukraine earlier. So they will start the offensive from the east and probably from the south. There is already escalation there and they can do it from the north again. But in fact, they showed that they don't have any motivation on the battlefield. And Ukrainian soldiers are very determined and Ukrainian people are determined. And we have commitment from the West. And so we hope that we will stop them this time. The only thing what we are afraid of, there will be a lot of a lot of blood. And we're really very sorrowfully watching this preparation for the offensive and very afraid and praying for our people there. There might be as many as 100,000 soldiers gathering in Belarus for a northern attack. What have you heard about that? We expect all the possible scenarios because we already saw how aggressive Russia is 
on the ground. So they definitely can prepare to attack from some points, but it's very difficult to do. First of all, we are more prepared and our border is very well equipped. And you cannot actually attack from all of this border because we have swamps there and we have forests and it will be difficult to pass through them. Right now they are training there. So we are following very closely. But, you know, they can just try to attract more of our troops there so they can be more successful in the east. So we like thinking really logically about this and actually we have an ongoing mobilization. So I think we will be prepared. But again, Russia is very aggressive and we need to be very serious about this. As you mentioned, several countries have committed to sending tanks, 88 Leopards from Germany, 31 Abrams from the USA, more from UK, France, Canada. When will these arrive and put into use? That's such a great question. Every Ukrainian is following the arrival of these tanks because this arrival means the face of our people, sons and husbands and brothers and, you know, friends on the front line. So the first tank is already in Poland. It's a Leopard tank that is moving from Canada. But we expect the German tanks will be here at the end of March. From the middle of February till the end of March is going to be really very dangerous and bloody. And I see how Ukrainians are preparing and very sorrowful that we will lose a lot of a lot of lives. That's why we ask to speed up this arrival as much as possible. What are the average people doing to be prepared? Well, let me first say this positive sign that the number of people who live in Kyiv is now almost equal to the number of people who used to live here before the war. Before the war, there were 3.8 million of Ukrainians living here and now 3.6. During the war, it was an empty city, just a fortress full of people with guns. Right now, if you go out, you see mothers with kids, you see kindergartens and schoolwork, you see businesses around. So before... The Ukrainians are well equipped with knowledge and with generators, power banks, and we all know where the bomb shelters are. And believe me, many people, they hide in the metro stations or bomb shelters. Sometimes if we don't have time, we just go to the corridors or to the bathrooms. And many of Kievans, they are on the front lines. And we have a lot of military people here in the military uniform. And let me say that after the beginning of the war, Kiev turned into the fortress immediately. So we already know how to make checkpoints, how to make Molotov cocktails, where to take guns. In first days, it was very scary. But there was a lot of gratitude to all those people who are able to make these weapons, take these guns, and to actually stand against Russians. There's a very interesting scene you describe in your book when you and your then-boyfriend, now-husband, Pavlo Kuchta, went to Lviv after the initial bombing, and you went into a restaurant that was open and running, and this dissonance between cities, including Kiev at that point, that were being bombed, and normal life going on just in the next big city. What can you say about that now? 
at the very beginning, nothing worked in Lviv. But at some point, like April, when there was understanding that Russian troops are not going to invade Western cities, and when Russian troops left Kiev, yes, the first restaurants were open. The thing is that war is about balance between life and death, and you can never accuse life of existence. Well, you know, I still have tears in my eyes when you remind me about that. It's it's very difficult because uh, because the war, you know, it's very painful. You see such huge destruction and brutality, and you see how many people die. And then you see something like restaurant with good food, and there is peaceful music. So it's it, it just shows that... You know, we can have peaceful life, but it emphasizes how painful the destruction is because no one deserves what Russians are doing here. You know, there were a lot of debates about this. You know, there is this balance. We are fighting for this life. So it's not like we all need to shut down. We need to produce, you know, sometimes we need to enjoy There is just the level of morality, like, for instance, one of the closest people to the president has been fired after he was seen driving luxury Porsche, and that was like a very low bottom of behavior when there is so much destruction. But on the other hand, business is opening right now, and we see a lot of restaurants opened in Kiev. Probably they do not function 100%, but they do function. Shops open, selling clothes, coffee shops, groceries. And I am personally very happy for those businesses who managed to go through this disruption of logistics, blackouts and missiles and rockets that destroy, you know, so, so much things in Ukraine that I'm proud of those businessmen. If there is no economy, then probably no soldier will be able to fight for a long time in the front line. You described this recent firing of a member of Zelensky's government because he was driving around in a flashy car. What can you tell me about Zelensky now versus Zelensky a year ago? In fact, I didn't see anything new except uh, this is Zelensky in constant crisis. But as Olena Zelenska, the first lady of Ukraine, put it, her husband is very persistent. And this means that he never gives up. Earlier, he never gave up in some political decisions. Now it's about the war. He never gives up and he is going to move towards his goal despite any challenges. And this actually what made him a good leader of the country in war. And that's why, you know, people respect him. The world was surprised. He did not leave the country. He said, I need ammunition not to ride when he was invited to leave the country. For me personally, I was surprised that someone provided him this invitation to leave. I know that this person never is going to avoid any risks. I was traveling with him to Donbass, the eastern region of Ukraine that Russia attacked back in 2014. And we traveled hundreds of kilometers of demarcation line near Russian army that was shelling, fighting. And when he was traveling to the Ukrainian soldiers to handshake, to give them awards, to talk to them, and the shelling began. And he never wanted to leave the soldiers. Once, we even almost left, and then the shelling began, and he returned. Even his security was shocked and didn't want to allow him that. But he said, I'm a leader, I need to be with my soldiers, I cannot run away when they are shelled. And that's like the whole Zelensky, what is he about? He is not afraid of risking his life, and he is quite matured in chaos. 
I think he's very exhausted, to be frank. This is seen physically from him. But I know this is not the kind of person who is going to give up. And that's why I believe in the victory of Ukraine. You described this transformation that President Zelensky went through from the time that he was told that he should be silent and the time that he started to really communicate with Ukrainians and has addressed Western nations and continues to give constant updates and messages at the beginning, Zelensky entered this world of political intrigues and he was learning. There were a lot of men who were very powerful and they felt like their voice was more important than mine. And they felt like, you know, I'm just a young girl there and I didn't need to stand for some values or stand for some new rules. And there were people who insisted that he did not communicate with media, but uses only social media. And as a press secretary at first, I was forbidden to even respond to the media requests or to give any comments on some matters. But then Zelensky provided me opportunity to be heard and provided me opportunity actually to build this system of communications. And after President Zelensky provided the first interviews, he saw how important it was to talk to journalists. And he took this responsibility and said, we are going to talk to media. And that was a very important decision. This is something that he needed to learn. This was an important decision at the very beginning. If you want to be a leader of democracy, you must respect media. You must talk to journalists who always ask difficult questions. So I'm very happy that he made that choice at that moment. And I'm very happy to be at the very beginning and to contribute to building this system. And I remember his first interviews. I know how he prepares. He pays attention to this because he cares. And definitely this depends on the team that helps him, always providing the most current information, always ready to help. What in your estimation is taking the world so long to respond in a profound military way to what Putin is bringing to Ukraine? I think that there was this huge misunderstanding of what Russia is, that someone could behave in such absolutely illogical, absolutely brutal way as Russia does right now, 21st century, the middle of Europe. And I guess it just took time to really see the reality. So I guess with every atrocity and every brutality and every absolutely illogical way of behavior, the West was understanding this disaster that Russia was planning and is doing right now. Actually, this is autocracy and we must stop this. Nobody deserves this. And I guess many Westerners really underestimated Ukraine, as well as Zelensky, who had this image of a comedian. When they saw how our men and many females went to the front line, that people believe in this country, want to rebuild it, you know, and connect our dreams and plans and the future with this country, they understood that they have an equal partners strong enough to fight together. I am Anne Levine from WOMR Provincetown, Massachusetts, reporting for the Pacifica Radio Network. Our guest is Yulia Mandel, President Zelensky's first press secretary and the author of 
the fight of our lives. Thank you for joining us. In December of 2019, Yulia Mendel, you were part of Zelensky's team that went to Paris to meet with President Macron, Chancellor Angela Merkel, and Vladimir Putin. I was watching the negotiations and I was working on communique that was out based on the negotiations. But we underestimate the power of propaganda, of strong Russia and image of strong Vladimir Putin as a leader. In fact, he really was a weak negotiator. Everybody does what he wants. Nobody contradicts. So he was really pretty uncomfortable. Putting his eyes down, he was uncomfortable in his chair, constantly asking his advisors about something, avoiding questions, and he really believed in his own propaganda. That's where I saw he was really a weak negotiator. In your book, you describe him as old age. What do you mean by that? It's not about his age. He is outdated. Like this modern present was not right for him. Like even how he formulates his sentences, how he moves, the values that he tries to expand. Some of his delegations were coming to talk to me and their worldview was so outdated. You know, you looked at them and you understood that they cannot build the future. And Russia was old age and outdated. And that's exactly what they are doing here. They are trying to renew the horrors from the past, from the World War II, from the genocidal practices, from the famine, you know, and and to expand actually these horrors. And this is exactly the fight right now in Ukraine. This is the fight of the future and the past. So we must give the future the chance to be better. Russia has weaponized the Russian language. Mm-hmm. I really devote a lot of time to the language issue in the book, The Fight of Our Lives. Russia used propaganda, disinformation to divide the society. Mostly Ukrainians are bilingual. Ukrainian and Russian languages both have been in Ukraine for thousands of years. But since Russian Empire and Soviet Union, Ukrainian language has been banned in public, in schools, anywhere, in businesses like publishing books or showed as a secondary language of non-educated people, etc., etc. So this became a big historical trauma for Ukrainians. So the thing is that Russia tries for many years to divide the society on the language, saying, you know, that nationalists who try to offend Russian speakers. This is absolutely a faked conflict. It does not exist or make any sense. But Russia had this huge propaganda. In fact, Russia destroyed the Russian-speaking regions and population, which is the eastern and southern parts where people mostly spoke Russian. People lost their homes. A lot of people died. You know, my mother, she is from Kherson, which is in the south. I am from Kherson. It's a Russian-speaking territory. And when Russians came there, she said she saw that was fascism. She stayed under occupation for eight months. That was super stressful. And now she lives under shelling all the time. She's a doctor, so she helps a lot of wounded people. There are soldiers, children, civilians. And she feels like, you know, this is her duty during the war. They're Ukrainians, and that's her home. And after this war, Russian is the language of the terrorists. So we just want to switch to Ukrainian. We don't want to follow Russian anymore. 
that happened very organically, very naturally, the burst of, you know, Ukrainian language songs, books, culture, and Ukrainians have the right to speak Ukrainian. And this is what I guess will be happening in the future because Russia is destroying its own culture and world. In the fight of our lives, you describe the situation in Moldova, which I'm fairly certain not too many Americans are aware of. Can you describe that a little bit? Moldova is also make, having its own fight for European choice and for freedom. Russia tried to introduce military conflicts in several post-Soviet regions and countries. The first happened in Moldova in early 90s. They did exactly the same thing they tried to do in Ukraine. They faked conflict about language as if there were Russian speakers who were offended, which absolutely was not true. I travel to Moldova very often and people speak Russian there. And there is nothing about hatred towards Russian language. And so they sent their mercenaries and Russian army and did what later they did in Donbass. They occupied the part of Moldova. It's a very small country. So Kishinev, which is the capital of Moldova, was in a very difficult position because Russia sent gas to Moldova through the territory they occupied. Moldova was dependent on this gas, but also they were using the gas for the occupied territory where they provided very low prices. So the people almost did not pay and there was a huge debt that was growing and growing. So on one hand, they were saying this occupied part, which is called Transnistria, is Moldova. So Russia was saying, if it's Moldova, then pay for the gas. But then they were saying, okay, but this is occupied territory where its money is just stolen. You know, it's a very difficult political situation. And Moldova had the same huge fight of pro-Russian politicians and pro-European Union politicians. And they have this conflict since 90s. But this is a fight of very small people, very, you know, people with huge dignity and pride. This war galvanized Moldova's actions. So right now they have a very powerful president who is pro-European. They're making a lot of reforms right now. A huge victory for Moldova. And they also became the candidate to the European Union at the same day when Ukraine did. So they apply together with us. And we hope that when we are taken to the European Union, we are taken together, like in the same package, let's say, if it's possible to say. But let me say that in 2008, Russia introduced this same conflict in Georgia as if there were people who were offending Russian language, which is absolutely untrue. Then they occupied the parts of Georgia. Then they did the same in Donbass. And now they tried for the whole country a very bold and very not smart way to do with Ukraine. So so let me say that in 1991, Soviet regime collapsed into 15 states and Russia tries to influence every of these countries like Georgia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, you know, and Ukraine, obviously. In every of these countries, there is pressure from Russia, there is penetration from Russia, and Ukraine gave hope that Russian aggression can be limited and maybe, you know, destroyed at some point. We already see that Armenia changed its attitude. Azerbaijan stood strong against Russia. Kazakhstan doesn't accept Russian policies. And this is definitely the fight on post-Soviet space 
that will limit Russian capacities and together we are stronger because Ukraine is the biggest territory of freedom and the biggest democracy in this post-Soviet space. You know, Ukrainian revolutions bring the result. We used to have Putin's puppet regime here. We declined it. And it's very difficult to make Ukrainians vote for something that they do not want. We said, no, we're not going back to Russia. We are going to the European Union. So we had this successful revolution of dignity. It's also It was also bloody. Over 100 people died. But after that, we started moving to the European Union in a fast space. And we made a lot of reforms. And we hope that others will see and will understand that they can stand against Russian autocracy. What does Ukraine need to do to become a member of the EU? Oh, that's a long way, but we hope to go it faster. I was talking to the EU ambassadors, and they also are very positive. We have huge support there, but they consider that we will become the EU member in 2029-2030. Ukraine has done enormous amount of reforms since 2014. We understand that this is the reforms that Ukraine needs indeed. Every Ukrainian needs to have justice. And if we want to show we are different, then we fight corruption, not fake fight of corruption. And this is also the fight of our lives. Also, you know, we need to reform our justice system and law enforcement system and to make our institutions stronger. Some of the reforms, they had opposition from those who are called oligarchs. But now oligarchs are super weak and we hope that there will be no monopoly on the markets of Ukraine. Ukrainian authorities are very positive to be a part of a strong uh, European Union for the reason that it will be much more difficult for Russia to attack the Union than just one country. You were Zelensky's press secretary, before that a journalist, also a doctorate in Ukrainian literature. What are you doing now? <laughs> Thank you. Nobody actually mentions, but yes, I, I was uh, writing my thesis about Ukrainian poetry. After the war started, I started immediately writing a lot. I felt journalism became so important during the war to explain what's going on here in Ukraine. I was tackling Russia's disinformation, and I'm happy to write for the Washington Post. And I was published in some other media outlets like Political Europe or Evening Standard. Plus, I'm training Ukrainian journalists to understand how international journalism works so that more and more Ukrainians appear on this international platform. And I'm having more plans to come. When can we expect the next book from Yulia Mendel? <laughs> Thank you. Maybe this will be not the fight of our lives, but the victory of our lives. That's what I hope for. So this depends on the Ukrainian army. And I hope that we will see the first steps toward peace this year. And I hope that the West stands for us. Then the winner will have modern weapons. We will be able to defeat autocracy. Yulia Mendel, we play one piece of music. What would you like me to use? Uh, we are the champions. <laughs> time after time. I want the world to understand that we are the target for Russians, but we are in no way losers or we're not uh, victims. 
We are fighters, and we are gonna give here the fight until we win because we are fighting not for the territory, not for the resources. We are fighting for the people, and we are fighting for the values. You know, there is no reason to live without values, and that's why this is such an important fight. So probably we are the champions. Is going to be <laughs> the best song here. <laughs> Champions by Queen. Our thanks to Yulia Mandel. I am Anne Levine, the host and producer of Ukraine 242. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg for the Pacifica Network. Recording by Michael Levine. For more information and to see pictures of our guests, go to Ukraine242.com. Thank you for joining us. Until next week on Ukraine 242.